Chapter 8 of Aunt Hannah and Martha and John by Pansy and Mrs. C.M. Livingston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter 8. Impromptu Visits. Owing to the loss of sleep, due to the excited state of her feelings after the jar with her sister Hepsy, Mrs. Adams did not rise the next morning at her usual hour. The sun was actually streaming into her room when she opened her eyes. Such a thing had not happened for years as that he should get the start of her in rising. She got up hastily and moved softly about that she might not disturb Hepsy. Poor thing. I'll let her sleep late this morning, she said to herself. Her nerves are sort of used up, I suppose, and I am an old goose to notice what she says. I'll try what extra kindness will do for Hepsy. I won't ring the bell, and she shall have a nice breakfast got ready for her when she comes down, with the very freshest eggs to tempt her appetite. She smiled pityingly as she pulled the scissors out of the door, and resolved again to be more patient this day. Unusual temptations required unusual effort and watchfulness, Mrs. Adams believed, so she lingered longer this morning in the little room to which she always retired for prayer. It was just at the head of the stairs, a small room with a sunny window that had been her husband's. The furniture, beside the rag carpet, was a shelf of books, a round table with a large Bible, and an armchair. Here in this room was the source of all that redeemed Farmer Adams's life from the commonplace. Scott's Commentaries, Dick's Philosophy, Bacon's Essays, and Milton's Poems were all well-thumbed. Could anyone wonder that he had seemed so superior to many of his brethren, whose treadmill life had three aims only, to eat, sleep, and work? The room was just as he had left it, and here his wife came daily as to a holy of holies, reading his books, studying his Bible, and trying to practice his virtues, always humbly assuring herself, though, that she should never be as good as he had been, not in this world at least. She knelt here this morning again, confessing defeat and failure, saying with one of the old saints, Lord, many a times I am a weary quite of mine own self, my sin, and vanity, Yet be not thou, or I am lost outright, weary of me. Intent on household cares, Mrs. Adams was surprised to hear the clock striking ten. Why, what can make Hepsy sleep so late, she thought, starting upstairs at once to see if anything was amiss. She went softly to the door and looked in, but the bed was empty. Oh, I see, she said. Hepsy went down the front stairs while I was coming up the back ones. She hurried down to carry out her plans in regard to the breakfast, but Hepsy was not in the sitting-room, nor outdoors, nor anywhere, it would seem. "'Where can she be?' Mrs. Adams asked herself over and over, while visions of Hepsy plunging into the dark waters of the pond floated through her brain. She went upstairs again to try to find some clue. Hepsy's bonnet and shawl were gone. Had she become suddenly demented and strayed away? Such things did happen— and then the echo of that long-drawn sigh smote the sister's heart, and she wished she had been kinder. She pondered a while in deep distress as to what should be done, and, as a last hope, went down to the kitchen. Perhaps Dorcas had seen her start. As she had herself been at work out of doors all the morning, her handmaiden had found no opportunity for the bit of sociability which she prized. Mrs. Adams went into the pantry and busied herself at starting up a gingerbread, if Dorcas had anything to talk about, it would be sure to come out, she knew. "'Your sister took an awful early start this morning, didn't she?' began the girl. 
Yes, she did, came from the pantry. I most always hear the stage go by, went on Dorcas, but this morning I must have been so sound asleep it took my wits away. I hear it a ramblin' and thinks to me, Is that thunder? And then it come nigher, and I knew it was the stage, and then behold, it stopped. I couldn't think whoever was going away to our house, and I hopped right up and looked out the window, and there twas your sister just getting in the stage. Yes, it's pretty early, said the crafty mistress. It starts a little before five now. Her inner remarks were, Hepsy's gone to John's as sure as the world, of all things. It must be because there's no place between here and Belleville where she would stop. However did she get off without my hearing her? It's just like Hepsy to fly off the handle like that. I didn't know your sister was a-going away so soon, said Dorcas. Is she gone fur? To Belleville. The gingerbread was receiving some vigorous stirring. Going to stay long, is she? Long enough to make a little visit. Dorcas, run to the barn and get me another egg. Quick. While she was gone, the quick-witted mistress came to several decisions. One was that no soul about the premises but herself, be she ever so inquisitive, should know as to the true state of things if she could help it. Another was that Hepsy should not stay in Belleville and torment Martha. She could see how easily it might be the means of discord between the young couple. John would feel bound to be kind to his aunt, and manlike would not be able at first to see why she couldn't live with them as well as anywhere. And that little wife of his has got just about as much as she can manage, I mistrust, she told herself while she poured gingerbread into the pans. To the girl, she said, quite as if Belleville was a matter of two miles away, Dorcas, you may get me a cup of tea and a bite of something pretty soon. I'm going to drive over to Belleville myself and surprise them all. I shall stay over Sunday and come back Monday, I guess. If not, then Tuesday. Of course, you and Peter can get along without me for that long. Law, yes, said Dorcas. Stay all the week if you want to. Nevertheless, she fell to wondering why Mrs. Adams did not go in the stage with her sister. She would have liked to ask her, but there was a subtle, indefinable limit to the freedom of the friendly intercourse between mistress and maid, and Dorcas knew when she had reached it. Mrs. Adams had decided to go by herself, partly because she did not want to be bothered with anybody, and partly because she wished Peter to go on with his plowing, and then she expected to bring her sister home with her. How that was to be brought about she had not yet planned. She only knew that when her wits and her will set to work on any hard job, it was usually accomplished. It was not much past twelve o'clock when Mrs. Adams gathered up old Dolly's reins and told her to get up. Under the buggy seat were stowed all manner of good things, a little jar of butter, a basket of fresh eggs, and one of the new gingerbreads. The day was perfect, and Mrs. Adams would have enjoyed the journey immensely if the perplexity of what she should do with Hepsy had not absorbed her, so that she could not give her undivided attention to fields and hills and woods, just decking themselves in all the bud and blossom and greenery of springtime. Hepsy was wonderfully set, and when once she took a notion, she pursued it with that peculiar steadfastness common to stubborn, narrow people. However, Mrs. Adams was a woman of resources, and it must be taken for granted that she did not rack her brain for nothing as Dolly trotted contentedly over the pretty country road. "'We shall get there before dark,' Dolly's mistress announced to her when they were within five miles of Belleville, which the wise old horse seemed to understand, for she pricked up her ears and hastened her gait. 
It was but a minute after, when passing over some logs that covered a wet place in the road, that they came to grief. A jolt, snap, crack, went one of the axles, and down went the buggy. Whoa, said Mrs. Adams sharply, and Dolly stopped short, turning her head far around, asking as well as dumb eyes could, whatever's the matter? Now we've done it, sure enough, Mrs. Adams said, getting out and speaking aloud, as she always did when excited. My buggy break, of all things. She felt almost angry at the old vehicle standing there, brazen and defiant, dragging itself in the mud in that shameless manner. It and Dolly had been standbys for years. It had gone uphill and downhill, and over all sorts of rough places, and had been rated as good as gold. Its owner regarded it for a few moments as one might an exemplary person, who, all of a sudden, breaks out in some glaring fault. What right have you to be disorderly, is the first thought. Dolly, too, turned reproachful glances at the old gig, as if to say, How could you? just at this time, too, of all others. On the hillside a few rods away was a well-to-do-looking farmhouse. Thither Mrs. Adams betook herself, after unhitching Dolly and tying her to the fence. It was a good half-hour before the farmer and his men came in from a distant field. They went at once to see what could be done for the broken wagon. After many ineffectual attempts, they announced that the break was such that it was impossible to mend it temporarily so as to make it perfectly safe for traveling. Mrs. Adams tried to hire another conveyance, but they had nothing on the place light enough for one horse, as one of the family had gone away with the spring wagon, and would not return until late in the evening. A glance at the tired-looking team that had been plowing all day convinced Mrs. Adams it was useless to ask to be taken to town by them that night. Curiously enough, while she stood there perplexed, her thought went back to long ago when her young husband had tried to persuade her to learn to ride on horseback, saying half-jokingly, you will be sorry if you don't. You will be in a tight spot some day, and will wish you had learned. Forty years had passed away, and the tight spot had never appeared till now. How easily she could get to Belleville if she were in the habit of riding on Dolly's back. I'll tell you what I'll do for you, the farmer said, seeing her disappointment. I'll send your buggy to the wagon maker Monday. You're welcome to come stay with us tonight, and tomorrow we'll drive you over to town. "'So that I will be in time for church?' Mrs. Adams asked. "'But I suppose you go to church there yourselves?' "'No, we don't go to church mostly, but we'll drive you over in time.' There was nothing else to be done but submit thankfully. While tea was getting ready, Mr. Craig compared notes with Mrs. Adams, and was so much pleased with her knowledge of farming and her shrewd remarks that the way was opened for her kindly words of inquiry about the things that pertain to the other life— which this true servant of her master found opportunity to speak later in the evening. When we see no longer through a glass darkly, Mrs. Adams will doubtless find that what was called an accident that afternoon in front of Farmer Craig's had to do with his eternal destiny. So it is that the earthly and the commonplace serve the divine and glorious. That is the house, the white one with green blinds, set far back from the street, Mrs. Adams told Mr. Craig, as they drove down the village street the next morning, just as the last bell began to ring. I'd better go right on to the church, for I suppose John's folks have gone. Just then she caught sight of the front door standing partway open. Somebody must be at home. She decided to stop. She walked in without knocking or ringing, after the manner of privileged relatives, through the parlor, on into the little dining room and kitchen. Who knows but Martha is upstairs sick, she said to herself. 
half believing it to be true, by the time she reached the top, she tiptoed softly through the hall and to Martha's door, lest she might be asleep, and it would startle her to be awakened suddenly. That young woman was still sitting on the floor, a picture of despair, what there was to be seen of her. Her face was hidden in her hands, for it must be known that it was only about three minutes after John had turned the corner on his way to church that Aunt Hannah drove up from the other direction. The wise aunt turned softly away and knocked at the door at the head of the stairs. There was a spring and a rustle, a splashing of water, and then Martha came to the door, her face half hidden in a towel, saying as she cautiously peeped out one side of the door, "'Who can it be?' "'Aunt Hannah!' And then the minister's wife, who was nothing but a girl after all, threw her arms about this dear old aunt and hid her tear-stained face in her neck. "'Why, Martha, child, what's the matter? Are you sick?' the kind voice answered. "'No, Aunt Hannah, I'm ashamed.' "'What is it, dear?' And the old lady put back a stray brown curl and looked down tenderly at the sweet face, as if she thought its owner could not have gone far wrong. "'Why, you see,' Mattie said, as she led Aunt Hannah into her room, and, placing her in an easy chair, knelt by the side of it with her elbow resting on the arm. "'Everything has gone wrong this morning. In the first place, breakfast was late, and I found a can of strawberries working, and I hindered myself a little heating them over, and Aunt Hepsy—' Then she remembered to whom she was speaking, and came to an embarrassed standstill. "'Yes, I know.' "'Go on,' Aunt Hannah said, smiling. "'Well, never mind about Aunt Hepsy. "'I ought not to say it, anyway. "'The rest and the worst is "'that I wasn't ready when it was time to go to church, "'and John went off without me.' "'The very worst she knew "'she hid in her heart, even from Aunt Hannah, "'and that was that John had spoken "'just the least bit cross when he asked her if she were ready. "'And then there was no such great hurry after all. The last bell had only just stopped ringing, and it would toll several minutes. John liked to be there early, all settled before the people got in, and that was right, but she could not help feeling that, considering everything, he might have waited one minute longer. "'I understand all about it,' said Aunt Hannah. "'You didn't feel like going alone, did you? But put on your bonnet and go with me. I want to hear John preach.' "'Oh, Aunt Hannah, I can't. Look at my red eyes.' Everybody would know I had been crying. Put that little veil you wear over them, and come, child. You'll feel better if you do. We'll be late, Aunt Hannah, and John doesn't like to see people come in late. He'll be glad to see us, I reckon, said Aunt Hannah, while her eyes twinkled. Mattie got up slowly and picked up the green bonnet. She had meant to make John feel sorry by staying at home, but she wanted to please Aunt Hannah, and then it was right to go. There was another reason, too. She could fairly hear Mrs. Pryor coming to borrow a pan or a clothespin on Monday morning and saying, Why weren't you at church yesterday morning? Yes, it was better to go. Why, what bonnet is that? said Aunt Hannah, who had a very good eye to the becomingness of things. That isn't yours, is it? No, yes, said Mattie, with a little hysterical laugh. It was given to me. I suppose I've got to wear it. I feel like a fright in it. You look like a fright. Nobody has any right to ask you to put on such a thing. Wear that pretty little bonnet you wore on the first Sunday. You'll make folks break the Sabbath laughing if you wear that. It looks as if it might have been made for your great-grandmother. 
So the little gray and white bonnet went on, after all, though Mattie compromised matters for Mrs. Prynne and Mrs. Pryor by tucking most of the white feather under the soft gray veil. There, that'll do, Aunt Hannah said, with an admiring look. Now I'll walk as fast as I can. We'll be there in time to hear the sermon. And if Mr. John doesn't approve of us, he can turn us out. It almost made Mr. John lose his balance when the door opened and Mattie walked in with Aunt Hannah. They dropped into a seat near the door, but many a head was twisted and several pairs of inquisitive eyes rested upon them, nevertheless. And there were two women who looked at each other in a meaning way when they discovered what bonnet the minister's wife wore that day. The sermon was on the text, Love as Brethren, Be Pitiful, Be Courteous. Nobody listening to the fervid utterances of the preacher would have had a suspicion that during prayer time his young wife was glad of the opportunity to hide her face a little and wipe away a tear caused by the remembrance of the impatient tone of the same voice that now fell so agreeably upon the ears of the worshippers. Nevertheless, the voice did not belong to a dissembler, nor to a churlish husband. In general, he did practice all he preached, but as he was not an experienced preacher, and had not learned to possess his soul in peace on Sabbath mornings before preaching, the strings of his nervous organization were tense, and all considerations save one, that of delivering his message, seemed for the time unimportant. In fact, John Remington had not had time to make a study of a woman's nature. He was engaged in it now, day by day, and enjoyed the research. He was slowly learning that his Aunt Hannah, self-reliant, calm, sufficient unto herself, was scarcely to be considered as a type of all women, and he was becoming convinced that years would not suffice to reveal to him the many-sided nature of the wife he had chosen, who was, by turns, gay, piquant, willful, grave, dignified, tender, sensitive, a creature of moods, none of them positively unlovely, and all governed by conscience. A being too human to be worshipped, and too dear to be long condemned. She had been reared in an atmosphere of love, where even chiding was accompanied by a caress and a soft tone. What wonder that she was inclined occasionally to consider a molehill a mountain, when a thoughtless or absorbed man gave her a hasty word, or no word at all. Mattie didn't enjoy the sermon, as was her wont. In the first place, she felt strange and ill at ease out of her own seat. She knew that curious eyes were upon her, and then the tears had not all had their way. When she was fairly seated in church, and it all came over her again, one or two actually filled her eyes and dropped on her cheek. It so happened that a pair of sharp eyes in the seat next to her observed it. Their owner, with great secrecy, revealed this choice bit of gossip to a familiar spirit next day. Our minister and his wife don't live happy, I guess. He went off without her in the morning, and I saw her crying in church. While the minister enlarged upon the sinfulness of Christians warring with each other, the congregation was as the average. Some slept, some fitted their coats to their neighbors, while others received the word with meekness and grew thereby and a type of each of the latter class was found in the minister's aunts, who listened intently to every syllable. "'Hannah Adams, of all things,' Hepsy said in a loud whisper as they came out of the church door. "'What brought you here?' "'Oh, I thought I'd surprise you all. You ran off and left me, and it was sort of lonesome, so I thought we might as well have a visit together.' "'And you traveled Sunday?' "'No, I didn't start Sunday.' John came along just then with a joyful, Why, Aunt Hannah, and listened to the story of the breakdown, 
and then he and Aunt Hannah walked home together, leaving the other aunt to follow with Maddie. End of chapter 8